Well, it's good to see you here uh, today. I was uh, just thinking as we were uh, singing those songs, let the nations sing it louder, uh, what heaven is going to be like someday. If there's one thing that's really awesome and really great about living in the day that we live in, it is that the world has shrunk. Do you recognize that? I mean, we can be, within a few hours, we can be any place on the globe on the face of the earth. If you think about it, just last week we had 18 people that were literally in what we would say is the middle of nowhere in Kenya, and today they're back with us. You know, 100 years ago, that wasn't true. 100 years ago, if you wanted to go to the other side of the earth, it would take you weeks or months even uh, to get where you wanted to go, certainly 150 years ago. And yet our world is so much smaller, and as I, we were singing that song Uh, This morning about uh, the name of Jesus, I was reminded that Scripture says that there is coming a day when every tongue, every tribe, every nation, every knee will bow, Scripture says, to the God of the universe. And I was thinking about what heaven's going to be like when that takes place. Uh, There's going to be people of every skin color, of every tongue of every nation, and we're going to be together in heaven, those of us that have trusted in Christ alone as our personal Savior, and what an incredible thing uh, that is. Uh, two other things that have caused me to, uh, to think about that. Um, I don't want to embarrass him, but we have a good friend of ours. Clemens, just wave your hand there. This is Clemens. Clemens Paul, and Clemens and his wife Manuela and their kids uh, have become good friends of our family. Uh, they're Germans. Uh, they're from Germany, uh, but they have a home here in Cary. In fact, Decided to buy a vacation home, get it. I live in a vacation resort in Cary Park. German people buy homes just to live where I live. Right, Clemens? It's all over the place like that, right? Yeah, just go along with me. Just go along with my story. Yeah, okay, yeah. And uh, we have gotten to know Clemens and Manuela and their girls and their little baby boy, and they've become good uh, friends of ours. Uh, even though we live uh, in a land, they live in a land far away from where we are, yet uh, there is a kinship because we're human beings, right? And at the end of the day, uh, we share things uh, in common. And so, Clemens, thanks for being here uh, today. I'm sure this is a new experience for you being in an American church, and uh, he's from a big city uh, in Germany and a, and a big cathedral there in Germany, and this is a very different setting, right? You probably don't have a band up on the stage or anything like It's very different, see? So, good, good. Well, I plan on getting over there and visiting with them, and uh, we'll return the favor. We'll come to your place of worship. And also, as our team got back uh, from Africa this week, what an incredible thing. Uh, I've already seen pictures. I was with John McNeese, uh, uh, supposed to drop him off at his house. He said, come in for a minute. You know how that goes, right? It never, it's never a minute, right? And uh, he started showing me his pictures on his iPad. And what the incredible thing was, uh, I saw some pictures that are very disturbing to me. I have to tell you that, all right? And uh, there are some people that I will never, ever look at the same after seeing these pictures. Um, Libby Padula, I just don't ever know if I can look at you the same again. And, and, and Bob, I'm going to come over to your house today and we're going to have prayer. I just want to just pray for you. In the, um, they decided that they hadn't had any chicken, and so I'll just leave it at that, that they had chicken, all right? They had chicken. And uh, to watch uh, Libby. Uh, Libby grew up on a farm, though, right? I mean, so this is not new to you, right? Yeah, you look like you were awful comfortable doing what you were doing, but very disturbing to me, very disturbing. And we're going to be uh, getting a report from our Kenya team a little bit uh, next week. 
and uh, hopefully uh, even more the first Sunday uh, in September. Uh, God just did some incredible things uh, through that group of people. David Loftus shared with me yesterday that of all the places he's been, all the trips he's been on, this has probably had one of the greatest impacts on his life personally, which I think says a lot. Uh, for a guy who uh, grew up in Jamaica, who has uh, been on the mission field all over the world, uh, we just had an incredible uh, trip with those people and, and we're really excited about our partnership there with our three Kenyan pastors and excited for you to hear uh, a little bit more uh, about that uh, in days to come. So those things just caused me to go, you know what, the world is really, at the end of the day, the world is very small. And uh, it's, uh, it's great to have people from every tribe, tongue, nation that we associate with, that we have a, a bond with, and certainly those that we have the bond with uh, because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And uh, we're, we're excited about that and to continue our influence, not just here in Cary, but obviously around the globe as well. Let me also just reiterate uh, about our family chat that David uh, just mentioned to you. Uh, that's a very important time for us. You've been coming to Northwest for any length of time. We want you to be here on the 26th. Don't be scared. If you've gone to annual business meetings in the past and you vowed never to go to another annual business meeting, give it one more chance, all right? Uh, this is not your typical business meeting, all right? We're going we're gonna to celebrate what God's done and about what we believe he's going to do through our ministry here uh, at Northwest. Uh, but we are going to celebrate, and uh, we're going to party a little bit too. That's why we have inflatables, we're going to have food, we're going to have the Pelicans truck of all things, all right? It's going to be here, right at Panther Creek High School. Somebody asked me, can we eat all that we want? Yes, you can eat all that you want, all right? Just give a little bit more the next Sunday so we can pay for it, all right? But we're going to have a great time together, but we do need you to buy those tickets and get uh, prepared so we can prepare for that. We know how much food uh, to have prepared on that evening, so make sure that you make those plans um, for the 26th, and uh, we'll, we'll look forward to being with you at that time. Next week, Andrew Jackson is going to uh, be speaking, and as I said, we're going to get a little bit of uh, a report from our Kenya team as well. Well, this is the last uh, in our short series that we've called uh, Sermon Hangups, and I really didn't know what to expect when we started this a few weeks ago. In fact, as we talked about it, because the whole thing is dependent upon you asking questions, Right? I don't know if you've ever been someplace where there's supposed to be some expert on the stage and, and, and he's going to answer your questions and then nobody asks a question, right? And that's pretty embarrassing. And so I started thinking as we uh, talked about this series, well, it's not going to be a very good series or a very long series if nobody asks any questions. And um, every week we have had more than enough questions. In fact, last week, when I told you that really I had twice as many questions last week and that I had still had half of them left over and I would finish them this week, I thought, well, we won't get many questions. I got 10 more questions last week. Uh, so this morning, um, we have 15 questions to answer. Now, just to give you an idea, the last uh, three Sundays, we've answered five questions each Sunday, okay? And so normally, um, when I come up here with my notes, I, I generally have six or seven pages of notes that I've prepared. I've got 30 pages this morning, all right? So just settle back in, all right? Put the seatbelt on, get your coffee out. hope you brought granola bars. If you need nachos, there'll be guys coming down the aisles, everything. Just like in Germany, right, Clemens? They do that at the cathedral in Germany, yeah. Uh, so just settle back in. All right, here's the real truth, all right? I don't want to disturb anybody because you'll just be mad at me right from the start. I'm not going to go through all 30 pages. I really decided I would prepare to, to be able to answer every question that was asked, uh, knowing that I can't answer them this morning, but I would be prepared to do that. 
And so I am. And so if you asked a question and I don't answer it this morning, uh, if you want to send me an email, I'll just simply send you my written response. Okay? Uh, some of that is cut and pasted from other experts on the topic. I'll send that to you. And then if you want to dialogue further about that question, uh, we'll do that. All right? I had somebody email me this week and said, I'm very disappointed you haven't answered my question yet. I think this person was being just a little bit on the sarcastic side because I'm really not sure that he even answered, asked the question. And in fact, I don't even see him here this morning, which is even more disturbing to me. We should call him right now, right? I mean, I got my iPhone. We should just call him and say, where are you here? I'm answering your question. Why aren't you here this morning? Talk about accountability. That would be great. Um, but if you find yourself in that situation, you asked a question, I didn't answer it, please email me this week. And, um, and we'll take your questions further because I take these uh, very uh, seriously. All right? So let's dig in. All right? Some of these are pretty heavy. All right? And um, we'll just dig in and we'll see where we get. All right? One of the questions that I got asked, I actually have 16 or 17. Um, one of them was uh, definitely a sarcastic question because the question was Chick-fil-A or Lost Trace? Which one? Which, which one are you... And I say, given the day, it doesn't really matter. I could go for either one, or I could have lunch at Chick-fil-A, and I could have dinner at Lost Trace, and that would be a good day. Can I get an amen on that? Anybody else with me? All right. All right, the first real question is, did Judas have a choice not to betray Jesus? Since it was God's plan all along that Judas would betray Jesus, in fact, Jesus said to Judas that he was going to betray him, did he have a choice? Right? Was, was there a choice? And we can't be absolutely uh, certain why Judas betrayed uh, Jesus, but there's some things that are certain, and I want to go through these with you real quick. First of all, although Judas was one of the chosen 12, uh, it's very evident from Scripture. In fact, all scriptural evidence points to the fact that he never believed in Jesus as God. He didn't. He kind of always hung around with the people that said that Jesus was God, but he never really acknowledged that. In fact, he may not even been, have been convinced that Jesus was the Messiah as he understood it. Unlike the other disciples that called Jesus Lord, Master, uh, Judas never used this title for Jesus. In fact, the only title that Judas used for Jesus that we find recorded in the Gospels is Rabbi. In other words, uh, Teacher. In other words, Judas never acknowledged him as anything more than a good teacher. Secondly, Judas not only lacked faith in Christ, but he also had little or no personal relationship with Jesus. If you again look back in the Gospels, you see the disciples and, and the relationship that they had with Jesus as they walked along the way and as Jesus taught them. But Judas never had that kind of a relationship uh, with him. Thirdly, Judas was consumed with greed to the point of betraying the trust of not only Jesus, but of his fellow uh, disciples as well. If you go back to the book of uh, John chapter 12, verses 5 and 6, it wasn't G only Jesus that he betrayed. He betrayed also these people that he was hanging out with, that he was supposedly uh, doing uh, life with. And here's what I, I want to, I, I really don't have time for many detours this morning, all right? So I'm, I'm only going to go there and then I'm going to come right back. But really, that ought to be something that when we look at the life of Judas, it ought to be something that we look at as well. You know, there are a lot of people that come to church on a Sunday morning, and they sit here, and they're around people who say Jesus is their Savior, that Jesus is their Lord. 
But really, at the end of the day, they see God as nothing more than just something that's out there. Or Jesus is nothing more than a man who lived and then he died. Maybe had some good things to say that are written in, a, in an ancient book. But that's their view of what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. In fact, that could be you this morning. That, that, that you could be sitting here and you could surround yourself by people that name Jesus Christ as their Savior and as their Lord. And to you... He could be nothing more than just something that you do on Sunday morning. I think that's a caution for us. Now, Judas' betrayal obviously was known by God. In fact, he, he, he knew that that was coming. He foretold that that was coming. But if Judas' betrayal was known to God, the, the question is, and I think that this is the point of this person's question, did Judas have a choice and is he held responsible for his betrayal? Now you're going to see that that theme is going to come up in a couple of other questions. Uh, that is uh, this concept of free will and the concept of free will and how that is, how we wrestle with that, with what God says is going to happen and yet at the same time giving us a free will. I think it's difficult for many to reconcile the concept of, of free will as most people understand it with God's foreknowledge of future uh, events. And this is largely due to our uh, limited experience of going through time in a linear fashion. Let me read this to you. I read this this week and I thought this was very helpful. If we see God as existing outside of time, since he created everything before time began, then we can understand that God sees every moment in time as the present. Now think about that. In fact, this particular person that I was reading this week said that it's helpful to look at God as viewing time not in a linear fashion, but as God being in the center of a circle so that at any given time he can look around and everything is exactly at the same distance for him. It's a pretty incredible way to look at it, right? Rather than for how we see things as in the future, we don't really know what the future is, or we look at the past, God sees things in a 360 way, right? It's kind of like my dentist friend who took some pictures of my tooth not too long ago, and he's got really excited about this x-ray machine that he had. It's called the cone beam. And he said, you're going to think this is really incredible. And I'm like, probably not, all right? I really don't get that excited about x-ray machines. In fact, sometimes I'm quite scared of them because they got radiation in them. He goes, no, no, come to my office. I want to do this. And he said, what's really cool is this thing is just going to circle around your head, and it's going to take pictures. And then he showed them to me on a big screen. I mean, I never wanted to see my teeth that big. I mean, I don't want to see them in the mirror, let alone on the screen that big. That's kind of the way that God views time, though, in that 360 way. We experience time in a linear way. We see time as a straight line, and we pass from one point gradually to another, remembering uh, the past we've already traveled through, but unable to see the future as we approach it. God, though, being the eternal creator of the and the constructor of time sees things in a much different way. And so this author said it might help uh, to think of time in relation to God as a circle with God being the center and therefore equally close to all points. And so God obviously knew that Judas was going to choose that. And, and so the question is, did Judas have a choice since God knew it? Well, God can know a lot of things that he chooses not to do anything about, that he chooses not to orchestrate in a different fashion. Now, could he? Obviously, he is the omniscient, omnipotent creator of the universe. He can do anything that he wants to do. 
His knowledge of what will happen is very different than him choosing to step in and alter what he knows already is going to happen. Rather, what Judas would would choose eventually, God saw it as if it were a present observation that he was making. And Jesus made it clear that Judas was responsible for his choice and would be held accountable for it. In fact, in Mark chapter 14, verse 18, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And so Jesus knew it. Jesus obviously gave Judas an opportunity. And yet Jesus, because he knew it was going to happen, foretold it. But Judas is held accountable for that choice. Very difficult thing to understand. And as I said, if, once we get down here into a couple more of these questions, if we get to them, like the one on predestination, election, and free will, we probably won't get there today. <laughs> Imagine how that happens. All right, question number two. This was a good question. I think this actually might have come from one of our kids. Maybe, maybe not. I'm not certain. But this has, is, is a question with regards to the flood. If God knew, and again, it's very similar to question one, if God knew mankind would be so sinful, why did the flood seem to be a plan to start with, like a plan B? Now, this is kind of a a, a two-part question. First of all, did God know Satan would rebel and that Adam and Eve would follow in that rebellion and they would sin? And the answer lies in, again, what we know biblically to be true about God, and that is that he is omniscient. He knows everything. Um, He's he's all-knowing. And there are so many verses in Scripture, Job 37, 16, Psalm 139, Proverbs 5, Isaiah 46, 1 John 3, that leave no doubt that God's knowledge is infinite. He knows everything. So we have to start out by saying, yes, God did know when he created Adam, and then he chose to create Eve, and then he said, you can eat of any tree in the garden, just don't eat of that tree. God didn't sit back and go, I wonder if they'll eat of it. He didn't do that. He knew that eventually they would eat of the fruit of that tree. And he knew everything up until right now and everything up until in, in, in the future that's going to happen with you and with me. Now, you've got to get your mind around that somehow to, to look at the second part of the question, which is, so did God know that Adam and Eve were going to sin? Did he know Lucifer would rebel against him and become uh, Satan? Yes, absolutely. Were they out of his control? Now, how you answer that really is, is critical to your theology, what you understand to be true about God, right? If you answer that question and say, God just kind of sat back. In other words, he put, the, he put things into motion and then he kind of just spun it out there and he just, he just kind of sits back and goes, I can't really do anything about it. If you have that view of God, I would encourage you to really wrestle theologically, to really wrestle on your theology, your understanding of who God is, because that's not the case. Absolutely not. These things weren't out of his control. If God's knowledge is not perfect, then there obviously is a deficiency in his nature. And any deficiency in God's nature means what? means he can't be God, right? If there's anything that's deficient in who he is and who he says he is, then it means he cannot be God. And the very essence requires the perfection of all of his attributes. And so, therefore, we have to answer the first question by saying, yes, God knew. God knew everything that was going to happen. He knew they were going to eat the fruit of that tree. He knew that eventually sin was going to come into the world. And as a result of that sin, he was going to have to judge that sin. He was going to have to wipe out what he had created except for a remnant of people. He knew that. And so we move to the second part of the question is, at least for me, why did he do that? 
right? Anybody else ever have that question? Why did he do that? If he knew that that was going to happen, why did he do that? Now, I'm not going to pretend that uh, some of you are getting excited right now because you're going, he's going to answer this question. I've been wondering this all my life, and now he's going to answer it, and I'm going to be the brightest person. Well, don't get too excited, all right? Because I'm going to probably leave you hanging to some degree at the end of this question, but it's something that we wonder. If God knew that Satan would rebel and fall from heaven and that Adam and Eve would sin, yet he created them anyway, it must mean that the fall of mankind was part of God's sovereign plan from the beginning. There's no other explanation that would, uh, that would make sense. No other answer would, would, would be comprehensible based on what we know to be true about God. Now, it doesn't mean that God's the author of sin. In fact, if you were to go to the book of James chapter 1 and verse 13, you'd, you'd see that God is not the author of sin. Uh, But the fall does serve, it it would seem like in the overall theme of Scripture, the fall serves as a purpose, or or as a, um, uh, serves the purpose of God's overall plan for creation and for mankind. And so I'm going to have to, I'm just realizing I just went through four pages, and that means I've got 26 more, and this isn't going so well. So let me... um, let me just kind of skip ahead just a little bit. Here's the conclusion that we can come to with relation, in particular, to the flood. In view of the assertions about who God is, uh, that uh, he foreknows, that he foreordains, um, we're going to talk in just a moment about those whom he elects, who he chooses to have a relationship with. In, the, in view of those assertions, we can conclude that God's purpose was to create a world in which his glory could be manifest in all its fullness. If you've been here any length of time, you've heard me say this on a regular basis. At the end of the day, we were created by God for his pleasure. Now, for most of us as Christians living in Cary, North Carolina in America, that really doesn't sit well with us that we were created by this omnipotent God for his pleasure. Not for your pleasure, Not so that you could amuse yourself on his planet, but he created you for his pleasure. And think about it this way. If you're an artist, Gussie, my friend Gussie is there, and Gussie is an artist. An artist extraordinaire, I might say, all right? Gussie's an artist. Gussie, you never created a painting where you said, I'm going to create this painting just for the glory of the painting itself, right? I mean, the painting is an inanimate object. The painting has no soul, no spirit, no, right? I mean, the painting is for you, for your joy as an artist, right? For you to enjoy that, for another person to look at that painting and to enjoy that. The creator has that ability with the creation to do that. I think it's a very key thing for us to understand. Middle school, high school students, listen to me. If you can grasp a hold of this, all right? I know some of this stuff's kind of flying over your head a little bit. But grasp this, that you were created by God and for his glory. That's why he created you. That's why what you do with your body, how you honor God with your body, that's why it's so important. Because it's not yours. It's his. He's the creator. He's the sustainer of life. He created you for his glory, for his pleasure. So the way that you live your life either brings him glory or brings him displeasure. And he can do that because he is the creator. You see how if you can grasp a hold of that, it makes a a huge difference in how you view life. If you look at yourself as somebody that belongs to God, as his creation, rather than you were created for your pleasure. That's very important to understand. The glory of God is the overarching goal of creation. 
In fact, it's the overarching goal of everything that God does. The universe was created, Psalm uh, 19 says, for what purpose? For his glory. If I created the universe, I'd go, look what I created. And what would you do? You would go, wow, he's awesome. I mean, I thought he was just a pastor, but look what he did. I mean, he created the universe. You wouldn't look at the universe and just go, that's my. You'd look at, I, I created that. And you would go, wow, he's awesome. Look at the universe that he created. The wrath of God is revealed against those who fail to glorify God. Romans 1, hopefully uh, we get there. Maybe not, but maybe we will. Um, our sin causes us to fall short of God's glory. A lot of you learned that verse as a, as a child, right? For the wages of sin is death. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of what? The glory of God. As a result of our sin, we do what? We don't bring glory to God. We do just the opposite. We do just the opposite of what we were created uh, to do. And so our sin causes us to fall short of God's glory. And in the new heaven and the new earth, the glory of God is what will provide light. Revelation chapter 21 verse 23 says. So the glory of God is manifest when his attributes are per on perfect display. And the story of our redemption is part of that. So when we live to please the one that created us, that brings God great glory. And so the classic objection to this position is that God's foreknowledge and his foreordination of the fall damages man's freedom, right? Maybe you've said that. Well, if he's already decided it, and if he already knows everything that's going to happen, then I have no free will. I'm just a little puppet on strings. In other words, if God created mankind with full knowledge of the impending fall into sin, how can I be responsible for my sin? One author said the best answer to this question can be found in the Westminster Confession of Faith. In chapter 3, it says this, God from all of eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own free will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, as thereby is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty of contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. All right? You're going, yeah, all right. Yeah, that's, that's good. Yeah, I got that. All right. What do you mean? Now, I, kinda, I know it kind of went over your head a little bit, but, but the bottom line is that we were created for God's glory and for his pleasure. And, to, and so to summarize, God knew that Satan would rebel and that Adam and Eve would sin in the Garden of Eden. And with that knowledge, even though he knew that that would, was going to happen, as he had that 360 view, even though he knew that was going to happen, he still created Lucifer. And he created Adam and Eve because creating them and ordaining the fall was part of his sovereign plan to manifest his glory in all of its fullness. And even though the fall was foreknown and it was foreordained, our freedom, is making, our freedom to make choices is not violated because our free choices are by the means by which God's will is carried out. We have the ability to be able to do that. Now, Again, we could have a series just on this particular topic. I get that. And for some of you, you go, no, please don't do that. Others of you are going, bring it on. I'd love to, I'd love to dig into this deeper. All right? The, the bottom line is that if you can remember that we are a creation that has been created for the glory of God, not simply so that we can amuse ourselves, I think some of these questions begin to fall in line. So that the glorious way 
of how God allowed us to fall as mankind to sin. And yet God said, I still want to have relationship with my creation. And he did what? He sent his one and only son. This is the gospel, right? He sent his one and only son to live on this earth, to suffer, to bleed, to die on a cross. I think that is the glory of God which is made manifest, right? Question number three. If a baby or young child dies before they're old enough to know God, do they go to heaven? Well, that's an easy one, right? I mean, yes, right? That's what most of us would, would answer. The concept, we refer to it often, and if you've grown up in church, you've heard this terminology, although it's not biblical terminology. You've heard terminology called what? The age of accountability, right? And we use that as if there's a verse that we can go to The age of accountability, that particular philosophy says this, is that children are not held accountable by God for their sins until they reach a certain age. And if that child uh, dies before that age of accountability, that child will, by God's grace and mercy, uh, they'll be granted entrance into heaven. And so it leads us to ask the question, is the concept of the age of accountability biblical? In other words, is there such a thing as the age of innocence? Now, for those of you that have had little babies you know that there is no such thing as an age of innocence, right? Anybody with me on that? You know that. I mean, I remember as a young father going in there and, and, and on a particular, you know, you go through these spurts with your kids, right? Even as little babies. And I can remember not long after Jordan was born, uh, probably several months, going through this spurt where he would just wake up in the middle of the night just screaming. And you'd go in there and, you know, nothing's, you know, nothing's messed up in the crib, uh, he's been fed, his diaper, the filter doesn't need to be changed, everything seems good. And then you look down at him and you go, eh. And it doesn't take you very long before you go, what? He's evil. He's evil. He only weighs 10 pounds, but he's evil, right? Any parent with me? I mean, you see it right from the beginning. Cry, 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 cry. You go, oh, something must be wrong. Nothing's wrong. I just want you here instead of wherever you are. I'm selfish. I want what I want, and I want it right now. It doesn't take really a a parent very long. Some of you that are getting ready to have uh, babies, you're going to find out pretty clearly and understand this principle that David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. I was born that way. Nobody had to teach me how to sin. David said, Psalm 51, verse 5, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. You see, David recognized that even at conception, he was a sinner. Here's the thing that we have to uh, remember. Uh, Each person, infant or adult, stands guilty before God because we've offended the holiness of God because we're sinners, right? Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned. Not all, after you reach the age of accountability, all have sinned and they have fallen short. They've missed the mark of God's uh, holiness. Uh, Peter states in Acts 4.12, Salvation is found in no, no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given by men which mu- whereby we must be saved. Salvation is an individual choice that we make. And so what about babies and young children who die before they, they, they have the ability to make an individual choice about, about Jesus? Here's, here's, here's the bottom line. Um, The one passage that seems to identify with this topic more than any other in Scripture, and if you have your Bible, you can turn real quickly to it, is 2 Samuel chapter 12. You remember the context of this particular passage. 
uh, is that uh, David has committed adultery with Bathsheba, right? No doubt David was a sinner. He said, I was, I was conceived in sin and I have continued on in sin, all right? So he had an inappropriate, adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. And as a result of that, there is a little baby that comes uh, onto this earth. The prophet Nathan is sent by the Lord to inform David that because of his sin, the Lord's going to take the child in death. And David responded to this by grieving, mourning, and praying for the child. But then, if you look in the context of that particular passage there in 2 Samuel 12, you'll see that David makes it very clear, uh, what is this thing that you have done, King David was asked. While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And David's response was this, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live, but now he has died, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him but he, shall, he will not, not return to me. David's response would seem to indicate that those who cannot believe are somehow safe in the Lord. David said that he couldn't go to the child, or the child couldn't go to him, but he could go to the child. Now wrestle with that, okay? Because that's what you have to do in this particular case. And I want to be very, very careful. I, I have recommended to you, by the way, if you get out your bulletin this morning, there's a list of resources I know some of you are very interested in some of these topics, and, and you will go and do a lot of study on your own if, if pointed to some uh, ref, uh, resources. And so I've done that this morning. Uh, the third book down, uh, for those of you that wrestle with this topic, is an excellent work on this. It's by John MacArthur uh, called Safe in the Arms uh, of God. It's just a little small book, all right? It's not one of those 500-page books. It's a little small book, but it'll give you uh, a, a really good way to... Uh, uh, to sort through that and sort through this question uh, biblically. Uh, although it's possible that God applies Christ's payment for sin to those who cannot believe, I want you to understand this. The Bible does not specifically say that he does this. The greatest proof text that we have is Second Samuel uh, chapter 12. And so, therefore, it is one of those subjects which I want to be very careful with you that I'm not going to be adamant and dogmatic. I will tell you what I believe, and what I believe is uh, that God somehow works that out because his grace, the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross, we know was sufficient for all of the sins of mankind. And I believe that text there, uh, David's words in 2 Samuel 12, would lead us to believe that. And so my position would, would be that somehow God applies that payment for, that, for, the, for the sin of the young child, or for that matter, the question also comes up to those who are mentally handicapped who have never been even in a position to be able to mentally acknowledge Jesus as Savior and Lord of their life. So that would be my position, and those are the proof texts that I would use. But I don't want to state that adamantly and dogmatically. I want to be careful about that. But if you want to wrestle some more with that, uh, that book, Safe in the Arms of God, would be, uh, would be great. All right, the questions just get harder because... Um, the next question was, when a baby or a person in a remote part of the world dies without having a real chance to know Jesus, where do they go for eternity? In other words, it's not just the person uh, who is a baby who mentally cannot acknowledge Jesus as their Savior. It's not just the person who's mentally handicapped. But what about the person in the remotest parts of the globe that will never, ever have somebody come to them and, 
and present to them God's plan of salvation from the Bible. What about those people? All right. Here's the problem. The problem is there is no one who understands and no one who seeks God. We know that to be true from Romans chapter 3 and verse 11. People reject the knowledge of God and that is their nature to do so. If you have your Bible, flip over to the book of Romans chapter 1. If you ever find yourself going, boy, I really want to study something and I really want to chew on some meat and eat some vegetables... I like to chew on the meat, don't really like to eat the vegetables that often. But if you ever find yourself in that position, spiritually speaking, go to Romans chapter 1, get yourself a good commentary on the book of Romans, and wrestle through Romans chapter 1. All right? It'll be really good for you. Because in Romans uh, chapter 1, we come to the conclusion that no one is without the knowledge of God. In fact, look at verse uh, uh, 18. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world is his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made known so that they are without excuse. A fascinating passage of scripture for you to wrestle through. Um, because of time, let me say this this morning. That if we were to assume that those who have never heard the gospel are somehow granted mercy from God because they've never heard, we would have to ignore Romans chapter 1 for one thing. But we'd also run into an incredible problem. If people who never hear the gospel are saved, then follow with me logically. Logically, we would say what? If they, if they don't hear, then they're not accountable. So we would have to say what? Why would we go to the bush in Africa, right? Why would we do that? Why would we tell them the good news of the gospel? Because if we did that, then they would be accountable for what they've been told, right? And like your kids that sometimes go, you didn't tell me, right? I didn't know. Or you, you look at the police officer after he stops you. Kelsey, don't ever stop me. And you say, he says, do you have any idea how fast you were going? I don't know. I don't even know what the speed limit is. And the cop would look at you and go, okay, well, since you don't know, because if that worked, trust me, I would use it on, not that I get stopped on a regular basis, but I would, <laughs> would use it from time to time, right? But the police officer looks at you and says, you are without excuse. Ignorance is not an excuse. You're still held accountable for your actions. It's a very simplistic way to summarize Romans chapter 1, those verses that I just read to you. If we really believe that those who never hear the gospel are not held accountable, then the greatest thing for us to do would be not to tell anybody, right? Because if you don't know, then you just kind of show up in heaven and go, I didn't know. Nobody told me. And that'd be like looking up at that police officer and saying, well, since you didn't know, be on your way. Enjoy wherever it is that you're going. Instead, they write you one of those little pink things. And they tell you to appear in court, to stand before a judge and give an account of your actions. And I firmly believe that that is what Scripture teaches. Why run the risk of people possibly rejecting the gospel and condemning themselves if they were previously saved because they had never heard? That is, by the way, that is why we go to the ends of the globe. 
That is why we send missionaries, and we've got missionaries in Asia right now that are in places that, that you've never even heard of, and they're ministering to people in, in, in languages that we can't even begin to comprehend the difficulty of learning those languages. Uh, Ryan and Lindsay Simchenko, I think of this morning. They are taking the good news of the gospel because of Romans 1, because people are held accountable. All right? All right, there's a lot more I could say there. I've got about four pages more of notes on that particular one, but, uh, but we, we won't go there. Here's question number five, and I'm going to answer this one just really quickly. This, this I found to be fascinating. This is what by, from one of our young married uh, couples. You say Christians have life uh, to the full, right? John said that. We've, he said, Jesus said that he's come, we might have life and we might have it to the max, to the full. Could it be crazy to say that those who are not in a relationship with God and will burn in hell forever are really people at all? Because they've not experienced real life. They were not predestined to be in a relationship with God, or they only here as a test to see how we respond in our voice of faith. Okay? Here's, here's the bottom line uh, for that. I think we've probably covered some of those things in earlier questions we've answered, answered, but let me reiterate this point. We were created to glorify God as his creation. That's why we were created. There isn't anything inside of me that believes based on what I read in Scripture that God created somebody and said, I'm going to create you to go to hell. I don't believe that. I don't believe that at all. God created his creation that it might bring glory to him. But sin, and here's what we have to remember, and you'll see this theme come up. Uh, We are not going to get to ten more questions, but you'll see this theme come up time and time and time again, is that sin changes everything. Sin changes everything. At the fall... In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve made a decision to eat of the fruit of the tree that they were told not to eat of, everything changed, right? I was reminded of that this week when the appraiser was coming to appraise my house, and I'm looking at these weeds growing up outside. I'm just going, why? The grass is dying, but the weeds, they are going strong. Anybody ever wonder? I mean, why? Why can't you make a grass like that, Britt? Why can't you do that? I mean, you work at a place that should be able to do this. Why can't the, gr- the green grass sustain itself? But the weeds, I mean, I'm thinking some of these weeds are like Jack and the Beanstalk. Literally, do you ever feel that way? You go, I know I came by there yesterday and it wasn't there. Anybody ever do that? There's that huge weed that's grown up. You know what that's a result of? It's a result of the fall. The, the curse of the ground, the curse of creation. Sin changed Everything. And I think that that's important to remember. And here's a verse that I've quoted several times in this series. I'm going to quote it again. Isaiah 55, verse 8. My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. I don't understand it. I don't understand how God creates a person who he knows, because he looks at time this way, who he knows will reject him. I don't understand that. But I'm so glad, and I say this to you on a regular basis, and I don't just say it as a pat answer. I'm so glad that I can't comprehend and understand every single little thing about God. Because if I could, that would make me God, right? That would make me as omniscient as he is. And I don't want that. And trust me, you don't want that either. (laughs) Thank you for that. I appreciate that. Here's question number six. I can't read it exactly as it was written because some of you might be offended by some of the terminology, so I'll, uh, I'll paraphrase here. Last week, I said that one of the reasons for marriage is procreation, right? That's why God 
God gives us marriage so that we can procreate, so that we can, in fact, he said that in the book of Genesis, and, and fill the earth. Some of us are doing a better job than others, but that is the purpose, one of the purposes of marriage that God gave to us, that we would have children, that we would enjoy those children, we would fill the earth with children. This couple, and I think uh, rightly so, wrestles with that and said, then why can't some couples have kids and others who, I'll just say, aren't so good at parenting can? Here's the thrust of that question. There are some of you that are sitting here today, this morning, and you're saying, why didn't God do this? Or why did God do this to me? Or why did God... Uh, do this to my family, or why did God allow this to happen? I really believe that this is one of the most difficult questions in all of theology is why does God allow certain things to happen that don't seem to be good? Because I think, again, if I was God, I'd only do good stuff. Unless you really made me mad, then I might do something. But for the most part, if I was God, I'd just do good stuff. The question ultimately is, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people, right? That's the question. I mean, that's the question that you've asked from time to time. You've laid in your bed at night with your head on your pillow and go, why is this happening to me? What did I do? We know that God's eternal. He's infinite. He's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. And so why does he allow that to happen? Hopefully someday we'll be able to do a series in the book of Job where Job wrestled with that very question. God, I've done all these things for you, and I've tried to serve you with my life, and I've tried to, and, and you've done this to me. Why did you do that to me? I was reading uh, this week uh, in preparation for our next series, Encounters with Jesus, John chapter 9. The text goes this, uh, verses 2 and 3. Teacher, his disciples asked him, Why was this man born blind? Do you remember what they said to Jesus? Why was this man born blind? Was it a result of his own sins or those of his parents? In other words, did you know he was going to sin and so therefore you took away his eyesight? Or did his parents do something wrong and you took away his eyesight? I love the way that Jesus responded. Jesus answered. Remember this verse. Some of you need to write this down. John 9, 2 and 3. He was born blind so the power of God could be seen in him. Wow, what an incredible text. So that the power of God could be seen in him. Is there a possibility that whatever is in your life today, which you don't think is really um, part of the plan that you would have for your life, is it possible that those things God has allowed in your life so that the power of God could be seen in you? Those of you young couples, you sit here this morning and and you want to have a child, and yet for whatever reason, God hasn't given you a child. Could it be, is it possible, that a good God, an omnipotent God, a God who's in control of everything, could say, the reason I'm going to choose not to do that is so that my glory could be seen in you as a couple. Could it be possible, person that's sitting here this morning, and, and you've got a terminal illness, and you say, why me, God? Why not that person? Why not my neighbor down the street who I know is evil and unkind? Why not them? Could it be that God said, I'm going to give you this so that my glory could be seen in you? Those aren't my words. Though. That's what Jesus said. 
Yet the prophet Jeremiah asked the question, Righteous are you, O Lord, that I would plead my case with you. Indeed, I would discuss matters of justice with you. Why has the way of the wicked prospered? Why are all those who deal in treachery at ease? Have you ever asked that question? And not me? Why do bad things happen to good people? The biblical answer is there are no good people. Right? There are no good people. You may look really good. You may do a lot of good things. But at the end of the day, Romans 3.23 again says we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of God's glory. There's no one righteous, not even one. A better question, I think, would be why does God allow good things to happen to bad people? Right? Because the one amongst us this morning that is the best has still fallen short of God's glory. And yet, do we see God's hand of blessing on our life? We are a blessed, blessed people. You don't have to travel very much on this globe. That if we ask that question as people living in Cary, North Carolina, I can't even begin to imagine some of you that were in Kenya last week seeing those little children whose parents, in some cases, they've been orphaned. What should that child ask? Yeah, sometimes things, bad things happen uh, to people. But I believe that God allows them to happen for his reasons, and we don't always understand them. I said to somebody this week, in fact, there aren't a lot of weeks that go by that I don't use this particular analogy. Uh, For us, everything that happens in life is as if it's like this, right? And you tell me now, read your Bible, Brian, and I I can't read it, right? But the further I move it away, if I get it to about right here, in fact, uh, once I reach the age of 40, it has to be a little further than it, than it used to be. But if I get it about right here, I see perspective, and I can start putting words, and I understand it. If it's a picture, I can make sense of what the picture is. But when it's up here, it doesn't make any sense. I can't, I can't you ask me what it is, what it says, what it looks like, what it's a picture of. It doesn't make any sense to me at all. But the further that I remove myself from it, things come into perspective. Have you ever had anything like that in your life? My dad was diagnosed, some of you know that, with a brain tumor at age 41, and at age 60 went to be with Jesus. That was not part of my plans for my dad. There are still some days when, even as a 46-year-old, I want my dad. Some of you have been in that same position. But you know, the further I get away from God taking my dad through that 19-year journey and taking him home prior to the time that I would have wanted him to go to be with Jesus, I have perspective And I see what God taught me and what he's done in my life as a result of what I've experienced. There are many of you that could give testimony to that even right now. Tragic things that have happened in your life. And yet as you remove yourself from that, you begin to see the hand of God in your life, in his good hand. I say this to people uh, all the time. I remember saying it to Debbie uh, Braswell when she was going through her cancer uh, surgery. Uh, And we say it all the time. We sing it. God is too good to be unkind. That's true. But the second part is also true. He is too wise to make a mistake. I'm not too good to be unkind. That's why you don't want me to be God. I'm not so wise as I could not make a mistake. But the God of the universe is. And that's why sometimes the question should be not why do bad things happen to good people, but why do good things happen to bad people? We trust that at the end of the day, God is the sovereign one. His ways are higher than our ways. 
And as we're removed from them, we see God's hand. That's why Romans 8.28 that we quote so often, quoted out of context for many of us, which says, all things work together for good to them who love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. His purpose ultimately is that we might bring him glory. All right, that's through question six, and we're out of time. Let me quickly give you these other questions. And uh, if you have interest in some of the answers, uh, you can send me an email. Somebody asked me, will there be free will in heaven? (laughs) If so, what prevents a repeat of the Garden of Eden unless there's no evil or temptation? That's a great question, right? We got free will in heaven. We'll we'll mess up heaven. (laughs) That's a pretty cool question. I'm going to get to heaven someday, and I'm going, this is heaven, and I've messed it up there too. All right? All right, you can imagine the answer to that is... uh, will be changed, right? The Bible says that we're going to see Jesus as he is. We're going to be different. Question number eight was, should Christians be involved in politics? Some say Jesus wasn't, so we shouldn't be either. Some really cool things. Uh, I'll just say uh, in passing on that question um, that um, politics is not the answer to our world's problems, right? And let me tell you, if, if, if the wrong person, according to you, wins the election, God's still on the throne. It really is. You don't have to worry. Unlike somebody that called me several years ago, about four years ago, and said to me, oh, my goodness, what are we going to do? I said, we're going to be fine. We're going to be fine. God's still, he's in control. He didn't go, oh, no, I knew I shouldn't have gone on vacation this week, and look what happened. Oh, this, holding this universe together is so difficult. He didn't do that. He's the sovereign one. He's in control. So politics are never going to change anything. I think Christians who live according to biblical principle, and we live that in the workplace, we live it in our neighborhood, we live it in our schools, the heart, changing hearts is what's going to make the difference. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be involved in politics. Some of us, I'm one of them, I'm a, I'm a political junkie. I'm telling you when the election comes around, it's like Super Bowl Sunday for me. I like sitting around watching the returns, you know, eating a half gallon ice cream, doing all those kind of things. I love that. It doesn't say we can't be involved, and we, should, and we should be. Book of Romans, if it tells us nothing else, tells us that we are, we are people that are here right now, and we should submit to that authority, and I think we should be involved, recognizing that's not the answer. Ultimately, a relationship with Jesus is the answer. Question number nine, please clarify the doctrine of predestination and election versus free will. I'll get right on that. and. Uh, I really wanted to get to this question because all I did was cut and paste uh, some of my notes that I used when we were in the book of 1 Peter, right there at the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 1, and some really cool stuff that's there. And, um, and so if you ask that question, uh, or if you're interested, I'll email this to you. I, re- I really think, well, I was going to say in a page, but it's really three pages. Um, there's some really uh, good stuff there. The reason God gave us the doctrine of election, though, by the way, just let me give you this in passing, was to tell us three things. And I gave you this when we were in the, in the book of 1 Peter. Number one, he's in charge. We're not. Number two, we can do nothing on our own. We're helpless without him. And number three, when we experience his unmerited mercy and grace, we ought to spend our eternity praising his glorious name. Because it's not about us. He chose us. Remember when we did a baby dedication several uh, months ago? And I told you what I learned about, and I forget where I was reading, where I was studying. You think I've got paper on my walls. I should know all these, this stuff, and I don't. I'm continually learning. And I found out that the reason why in the New Testament we, it said that God adopted us 
is because of how the Jewish people viewed adoption. If you viewed adoption that you, that, that you couldn't change your mind because you made the choice, you made a choice to adopt that person, you made that choice and you couldn't change your mind. However, a natural child could be disowned. <laughs> Figure that. Boy, if we only lived in Jewish times, right? Because the parent didn't choose. And that's why Scripture says that God chose us. He adopted us into his family. Isn't that cool? That's, that's really awesome to know that he chose us. It wasn't about us. He didn't look at us and go, well, you're a winner. I want you on my team. It's not what we do on the playground. You know, I'll take Greg's story. Look at him. I'll take him, yeah. But I don't want Eisner. Look at his body. I mean, I'll take Greg. That's not that. We didn't deserve anything. And yet God chose us. That's awesome. That's incredible. Question 10, if Noah and his family were the only people that were on the ark during the flood, aren't we all related to Noah? Yes. And how did we get different races? Good question. Glad I don't have to answer that one. (laughs) Actually, I do have some text here that whoever asked that question, I think it might have been one of our students, please email me and I'd love to to give you this. There's some fascinating things that I found on that particular uh, topic. What happens to a believer who keeps living in sin but says they, they have no doubt they're going to heaven? Bottom line is the Apostle Paul asked that question, didn't he, in Romans chapter 6. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? And the Apostle Paul answered his own question by saying, God forbid, how can we who are dead to sin live any longer to it? If you say, but I can keep on sinning because I got my get out of hell free card. You are sadly mistaken. You do not understand the gospel. Go to the book of 1 John, you'll see what it means to have an authentic relationship with Jesus. Question number 12, how do you hear from God if you don't go to church or read the Bible? I've got three pages on that, but the bottom line is you don't. You don't walk with God, you don't know what God's will is. You can tell me God told you something, it was the pizza you ate the night before, all right? It wasn't God. If you don't walk with God, you're not going to understand and know God's will for your life. You walk with God. And that's how you hear from God, and you know God's will for your life. Question 13. Many people say that God will not give you more than you can handle. Is that biblical? And if not, why do so many people say that? And why is it so prevalent in Christian music? 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, There's no temptation that's taken you, but such as is common to man. But God's faithful. He won't allow you to be tempted above that which you are able, but will with the temptation make a way to escape so that you'll be able to endure it. It's a very powerful principle. There's a lot more we could say there. Um, But God doesn't, the bottom line is, God doesn't give us more than we can handle. God gives us grace to be able to handle those things. And he gives us, I love 1 Corinthians 10, 13, he gives us the way of escape. He gives that to us. Question 14, if heaven is perfect, how can there be different levels of rewards? Does that imply that works may make a difference once you get to heaven? Works don't make any difference in you getting to heaven. They make a difference when you get there as far as your ability to be able to be rewarded and take those rewards, I believe, and throw them at the feet of Jesus. I don't think you want to get to heaven someday, but going, well, I got my ticket. I know you don't really know who I am. You haven't seen me very often, but I'm glad I'm here. And then you just kind of walk off, right? There's going to be a lot of, a lot of shame at that particular moment at the judgment seat of Christ. And I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago that Revelation 21.4 says that he's going to wipe every tear from our eyes. 
And I speculated, and I still do, that those are tears of regret, that we didn't live a life that was fully devoted to the cause of Jesus Christ. I really believe that to be true. Um, I'll give you just question 15. Why did God allow whole groups of people to be destroyed in the Old Testament, even those who were innocent like babies or children? We talked about war a few weeks ago and the consequences of war. And uh, I think that probably falls underneath that uh, line of questioning. The last one was Diana's banana pudding or good berries. I got to tell you, when I wrestle with that one, theologically, biblically, um, I, I don't know. I, I land on both of them. I, I, in fact, I could probably have good berries and Diana's banana pudding in the same night. That would be fine with me. So I'm, I can't really answer that question. Well, seriously, if you, uh, if you uh, gave me one of these questions and I didn't get the time to really go through the answer, please email me. I'd love to give you uh, that information. Um, I know for some of you that have been visiting the last uh, few weeks, um, it'd be very interesting for you to go, wow, is that, is that what every Sunday is like? Um, it's not, all right? I don't apologize for what we've done. I think for too many of us, our churches dumb down things too much. I think it's good sometimes for us to wrestle through things and to have our minds blown when we get to the back and we leave going, I don't quite understand that. You don't. But that's part of the process of sanctification and becoming like uh, Jesus and, and being the men and the women that he wants us to be and growing in our walk with him. Uh, that sometimes we're, 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 we're blown away with truth and we don't understand everything. And so I think it's good for us, to, for us to do these things. And that's why we've done this the last four weeks. And there are at least uh, 40 or 50 of you that must have thought that because we had a lot of questions uh, that were submitted. Um, but uh, we're going to be starting a new series uh, on August 26th. By the way, I'm going to do a, um, a message that day I'm really excited about. It's just a state of the church, okay? We're going to talk about who we are, where we've come from, but more importantly, where we're going as a church. And uh, so make sure that you're here with us on that Sunday. Communion, the first Sunday of September. And uh, then we're going to start our series on September 9th, Encounters uh, with Jesus. And we've got some really cool things planned uh, for that uh, series.